Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today on one of our earliest episodes, I got to talk to Vox's Rebecca Lieber, this super smart climate reporter um, who's been covering this space for over a decade. Um, And the reason I wanted to talk to her is because I was at the Hill all the time back when this law was called Build Back Better. you know, nearly losing my life in Joe Manchin's scrums, trying to figure out what he was going to do. And you'll remember it died. You know, Manchin said he he wasn't going to support it. That was it. And then all of a sudden it was resurrected and rebranded the Inflation Reduction Act and obviously passed, becoming one of Biden's signature legislative achievements and the most historic kind of sweeping climate legislation we've seen um, for decades. But the thing is, you know, at, at TPM, we have limited resources and limited beats of what we could cover. So I haven't really gotten to touch it that much since it's left the halls of Congress. Um, and now this is a law that is going to be unspooled over a decade. And we're now only, you know, about a year and two months in. But I wanted to talk to Rebecca to find out how it's been faring. Does it look like it's going to do all it was promised to do? How are the politics playing out now that this is a live thing out in the world? Um, Especially because in some modern versions of these huge signature legislative achievements, the messiness has not really gone away as soon as it's been implemented. The Affordable Care Act kind of springs to mind as something that became a site of huge political animus. So we wanted to find out where this law is now, how it's doing, what we can expect, and what she's kind of on the lookout for in terms of his success or failure, and also how that refracts back on our parties and the state of our politics in the context of climate change, which feels more important than ever as half the country is swallowed by flooding, as half of it can't breathe through wildfire smoke, you know, while the southern half of it is trying to stay alive throughout dozens of 100 degree plus days. So I think the conversation was fascinating. Um, Be on the listen for when Rebecca kind of talks about how the right wing's war against the administrative state plays into this, because that was something I wasn't expecting, even though that's, you know, kind of very much in our wheelhouse and something we cover a lot and something that'll come up constantly throughout this Supreme Court term. So it was a great conversation. I learned a lot and I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to TPM's Belaboring the Point. I'm your host, Kate Riga. Today, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Rebecca Lieber, a senior reporter who covers climate change for Vox. She's reported on the origins and misuse of natural gas marketing, the dangers of electric utility shutoffs, and the difference individuals can make as climate advocates. Her investigations into fossil fuel disinformation and climate obstacles have exposed government corruption and launched congressional oversight. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So today we're talking the Inflation Reduction Act or the IRA, the law that was once RIP, known as Build Back Better, and has since become one of the Biden administration's crowning legislative achievements. Um, we're a couple of months past the one-year anniversary of the law, and Rebecca is here to help us understand what's working, what's not, and you know what lies ahead. So Rebecca, let's start by looking back. You know, when the IRA kind of had its miraculous resurrection and was, you know, it was clear it was becoming law, you know, what did you think of it at the time? Like, were there any parts of it you were kind of particularly interested in or excited or concerned about anything like that? Yeah, well, if we go back to, I guess, a little bit over a year ago now, um, I happened to be coming back from a vacation the day that uh, Mansion and the White House announced this resurrection of a deal Oh, lucky um, you. (laughs) The IRA and and yeah, so Build Back Better was renamed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think what surprised me the most about it was how similar it was to the 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 framework of the Build Back Better. There, of course, some programs were dropped. The ultimate amounts of spending uh, decreased from what the Biden administration had envisioned, but a lot of the core components were still in there. And really, after the uh, months of talks and back and forth between um, Senate Democrats and Manchin and the White House, I didn't expect so much of the climate provisions to still be in there. Um, So the the main uh, thing that got cut in the end was a clean electricity standard. And instead, we got this much more complicated set of tax credits and rebates and other kinds of incentives to encourage electrification and to encourage clean energy in the economy, um, as opposed to having mandates. And that that's a really important detail. And it sets up some of the greatest successes for the IRA, but also some of its greatest failures so far, because it, it really is a complex law. Yeah. Can you kind of expand on that? The What are the failures and the successes now, even though obviously we're one year out and like a lot of this stuff is, you know, going to kind of come online over the next decade? Yeah, it's important to remember we are pretty early on in implementation. So um, it's hard to, to draw full conclusions of, of how the impact this law has had because it's just so early Totally. The federal agencies are still in the process of uh, implementing programs and even drawing up the rules of these programs. But it does have an impact. And I think that's actually one of the more remarkable things about the law so far is that we do see it having an impact on the economy this early on. And um, some of the, the probably the biggest uh, difference it's made so far is in driving manufacturing investments, especially we've seen this in the South and red states, ironically, Mm -hmm. that um, the law has nearly $370 billion across a lot of different programs. But but a lot of those are incentives driven at industry to bring back manufacturing to the U.S. and to boost um, everything from battery manufacturing to EVs to um, manufacturing heat pumps. Uh, domestically. And this is already making a difference. A lot of these factories have not been fully built yet. These are still promises to build. So again, it's early on, but the numbers are pretty astounding. So um, one report counted 210 projects announced so far since the passage of the IRA. 
um, which would translate into almost $90 billion in new investment across uh, 39 states. So this is um, driving an impact already. Um, in terms of failures, though, um, one area that is still being implemented that I think is really important to watch is um, rebates. So these will be um, essentially subsidies that bring down the cost of installing a heat pump in your home or buying an electric vehicle, or um, if you wanted to do that renovation to make your home more energy efficient. These are all um, attempts to bring down that upfront cost that is so such a barrier for most people. Um, that's not quite rolled out yet. A lot of these incentives are going to come early in 2024. And the actual rollout is left up to state. So um, I think we can already see that this is going to be really messy and the communication here is so important um, and that there's very low awareness about the law in general and about these kinds of rebates. So I think that'll be one of the bigger challenges coming up um, for implementation. You touched on a bunch of stuff I want to talk about, but let's start with the kind of political dynamic you touched on, how a lot of this, you know, early stage projects and investment are, are flowing to red states. And in some ways, this dynamic almost brings to mind, you know, after Obamacare passed and all the states could do Medicaid expansion and some states like preferred to leave federal money on the table rather than kind of make the Affordable Care Act a success. But what are we seeing here with the red states that are benefiting? Are they kind of like accepting the benefits of this law or doing a similar like let Biden fail kind of by any means? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think another great parallel here is um, if you think back to the stimulus that um, Bush slash Obama passed after during the Great Recession in 2009, 2010, um, there was the Republicans were were big critics of stimulus. And this was like a big campaigning point by the Tea Party, but that didn't stop them from going to the ribbon cuttings when (laughs) projects are built. And I think you see a lot of the same thing here that Republicans in abstract will criticize the law and criticize Biden and say this is government overreach, but they will, um, at the state level, they're they're, they're welcoming with open arms the funding because this is federal government spending at a level that we haven't seen in a while and investing in priorities like infrastructure. So one of the ways we can see that Republican politicians, particularly like I'm talking about here, state leaders, local leaders, not the ones necessarily in Congress, um, they are lining up for funding. And you can see that in applications for grants that the government, so a lot of this being run through Department of Energy um, has state-run programs that govern, um, states can apply for. And red states and blue states alike have shown interest. They have been raising their hands for the funding. So that's one example of how the the partisan divides are, are interesting in this law. Um, and, but that's it's still complicated because there are ways that politicization could, could impact the law and its implementation because um, Republicans um, have a lot of control at the state level, especially when it comes to how these programs will ultimately disseminate a lot of this funding. And it, it can be political. It's a little early to see how this will take shape, but we 
might see, especially for governments that don't want to talk about climate change, don't want to put in investments into making a resilient infrastructure, that they are using these funds in different ways. That's the state level. At the federal level, we're talking about completely different kinds of obstruction. Um, we can get into the the election. Um, that will be that will mean huge things for the future of the law. Yeah, let's kind of jump there. Um, a lot of Republican 2024 hopefuls are, you know, unsurprisingly not big fans of the law. But we even have, you know, Haley said she'd repeal it. Penn said he would at least repeal parts of it. And DeSantis and Donald Trump have also just kind of like criticized it broad strokes. So how much danger do you think this law is in if a Republican wins the White House next election? So it's important who controls the White House because so much of this law depends on how agencies then um, set up programs. So for example, the IRS is developing rules for how it will, who can be eligible for tax credits, how uh, they can use them. So these kinds of rules matter. And then who controls the White House, um, who controls political appointees to agencies, that will matter. You can see a scenario where you either have very sloppy implementation or um, not even an effort to not spend the funds that Congress mm. made available. It is a, This is a law. So there is um, some accountability here that a uh, president would have to, um, if if upheld by courts, um, actually holds the letter of it. But there are many ways that a president could mess with that implementation. Um, also, if um, a Republican holds the White House, they um, it, it's uncertain if they can fully repeal the law. Of course, that would depend on who controls Congress. But um, there is a playbook that's been developed to really uh, undercut all of the federal agencies and make good on the original promise of the Trump administration to really deconstruct the government and and take basically hack away at at agencies and regulation. And that the fact that there's already a very detailed plan in the works well before the election takes place shows how ready conservative ideologues are to come in and hit the ground running and not mess around in the ways that Trump did and ultimately failed on a lot of fronts and courts, um, I think you would see a lot more serious attempt to undercut agency powers um, and think parts of the law like EPA regulation. Um, there's this important fee on methane emissions that the law also creates. And this, you can imagine, would be a mess under under a Trump administration or under a Republican government. And and it's it it at the end of the day, this is $370 billion at stake. Um, that's a lot of money. And uh, yeah, it's a really critical time for who controls the White House. And if a Republican did win, do you think we could be in a situation where you're, you're kind of like depending on this 6-3 conservative majority Supreme Court to kind of stand up for agency powers? Um, you could see something uh, at the Supreme Court in, because we've we've this goes back to cases um, around this precedent of Chevron deference of how much how much uh, power do agencies have to interpret the letter of the law. And the Supreme Court has already been chipping away at that. Uh, it's possible there 
is a final blow there um, that really undercuts uh, powers that the EPA has relied on for decades to further environmental regulation. But it's not just the Supreme Court that would matter here. I think um, if you saw a Republican in charge, what you would see is also court cases to try to hold an administration to the letter of the law that they actually implement con- the congressional intent to um, to fight climate change, to lower climate emissions. This is now official law. And that's what made the IRA such a big deal because we did not have anything like this on the books for years. So there is some legal accountability here now that you might see play out in courts. Um, We are also, you can expect on the other end that there will be challenges to implementation of the law and interpretation of the law coming from from all kinds of sides, because there there will be winners and losers here of who makes a lot of money and who misses out. Yeah, I'm realizing as you're talking that, you know, I'm not really aware of any kind of high profile IRA legal challenges like to date. Have there have there been lots of them? Um, no, I think it's I think it's early for that because okay. um, the law it. it, it it's going to take some time for implementation, essentially. Mm-hmm. I think it's also that that Congress did express an intent here, and now it's it's the White House interpreting that intent. But I think what's um, the the point I'm trying to make is that the there is a level of interpretation here, and that is where there will be some trouble, <laughs> especially if a Republican controls because. Um, that is something that agencies, the president, do have a lot of power here to determine how powerful this law ends up being in, in addressing climate change. Right. I want to go back to something you were talking about, which is how a lot of the kind of consumer or like household level credit rebate stuff is still, you know, in its in its fledgling state and how, you know, it seems like that part of the law will be kind of key to its success since it's where a lot of, you know, quote unquote, normal people will would interact with it. Um, and something I've been thinking about is how it feels like this kind of program only works as far as people know about it and like know to apply for the credits and everything. It, how has that been going? Like, do a lot of people and do a lot of like, quote unquote, normal people know about this law and know that there's stuff in it for them? Yeah. So the polling so far shows very little awareness of the law. Um, it's it's a bit of a question how much that matters. Does it matter if people can name the Inflation Reduction Act and what it does? Or does it matter that they know that there is a rebate for heat pump that they can then purchase? Um, so it's it's hard to interpret these, these top line polls in t- terms of what people are actually hearing about. But Um, Yeah, awareness is very low, which doesn't bode well and, of course, has political implications. If this is Biden's greatest success, then no one knows about it. That's (laughs) that's a problem. But um, there's a lot of ways that the word can get out. And I think I think we're going to see this pick up steam, especially as these rebates I've been talking about roll out that there will be. There will be more incentive for, um, for example, manufacturers and even places like Home Depot to advertise this 
availability to get people to buy these products, I think we would see this this wider consumer education here that's not only coming from the White House, which maybe isn't the best messenger here. Um, the the biggest challenge, though, is it's confusing. It is there are a lot of different tax credits. There's different requirements of what income levels you have to be to get tax credit versus a rebate. Um, and I think again, these there are some resources out there. There are some. There are more in the works. But um, that level of confusion was kind of by design. This was a result of political compromise to get all of these, put all of these pieces together. But it also is a challenge of the law. Mm-hmm. You know, you wrote in your piece on the anniversary for Vox that you talked about the Green New Deal and how kind of it being undefined largely kind of left it open to politicization and let, um, you know, Republicans or kind of the right wing media ecosystem define it within that vacuum. Um, do you think that there's a risk of that happening with this law? Yeah, it's it's funny because we were talking at the beginning about this rebranding from Build Back Better to Inflation Reduction Act. And, you know, maybe that was a good thing because Build Back Better was also kind of tainted by the end from all the attacks. And um, it, it, these names, it can matter, um, the public perception. So, yes, it's still with, with public awareness so low about the law, it's still pretty easy to manipulate and to drive the message here in whatever direction. Um, We, I think a lot of that will, will keep coming, especially in election season. Um, And when you ask people about the specific provisions in the law, they're quite popular, but sometimes, and we we saw this with Obamacare, that there can be this overall perception that, well, it's not working. Um, so that's there is a high risk there of that politicization. I think we are seeing examples of how the IRA, excuse me, the IRA is being tied to culture war attacks. Um, these these incorrect ideas that Biden is going to ban gas stoves. He wants to take away things. Um, that this is not how the law works. But um, you do see presidential candidates use just it's misinformation about how, what the law actually contains and what Biden is trying to do. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely a danger. I think also the more that there's this perception that this is too complicated, this doesn't work. Um, there's a risk that people don't take up these kinds of opportunities, these kinds of rebates to electrify their homes. Um, the early signs on the, the, larger manufacturing end of like these programs, um, for example, to electrify school buses, there is a lot of uptake of these different programs and early interest. So that, that bodes well that this law really might deliver on those promises of trans transformation. Um, so yeah, a lot of this is wait and see, but, um, that is something that I am watching and am concerned about. You know, one thing you mentioned, the kind of rebrand from BBB to the IRA. And um, I'm sure you saw recently Biden saying he regretted naming the law, the Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> what did you make of that? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's it. the law became a bit more about, is it going to reduce inflation? Which it was a name. It, it really 
in the short term was not going to do anything for inflation. In the longer term, it actually, there are ways it can reduce consumer energy spending. So maybe it, it has more of an impact on the much longer horizon. But yeah, I think there was this round of media coverage when the law, when the new name was announced, the new plan, that question, well, what does this do about inflation? So yeah, it does raise that. I do, it does tell you, maybe a little bit more than Build Back Better. I also not sure <laughs> yeah. that really was a very informative name either. Um, but these are just names. Uh, I'm more interested in the programs themselves. Yeah. And do you think ultimately that like the success or failure of this law kind of in the longer and, and medium term will affect whether more kind of climate legislation follows? Or do you think that's more predicated on just the basics of like party control? Yeah, that's that's such a fascinating question. I think this sets up an interesting model. It, it was a clear um, departure from this idea that to fight climate change, the U.S. would someday pass a carbon tax or cap and trade, some kind of central definitive policy that cuts across the entire economy. This law made it official we are not doing that. We are doing a much more piecemeal approach to addressing climate change. And it could, it, it likely sets that precedent going forward that that's what we continue to do. Unfortunately, our climate politics are so, so polarized where it's, it's honestly, it's for the headlines wondering whether Republicans occasionally are, are moderating on climate. I think over my decade plus covering this beat, I think the partisanship's gone worse. The few moderates on climate left in Congress have are they're they've retired or they're on the way out. So it's really now that de- uh, Democrats who are not united in climate solutions, but Democrats are the only ones seriously talking about this at in any capacity, while the what counts as a Republican solution is just the um, the only serious proposal we've seen in in the last year is a proposal to plant trees, which doesn't even closely address the problem at, at the scale that's required. So, yeah, I think this is a political battle. Um, this will depend who's in charge, which is what makes these elections such high stakes. Unless unless there's a big a revolution in the Republican Party, it's going to be about party control. But at the state level, we might see more ex- experimentation. And, and we have seen that even in red states, even in Florida, they won't talk about climate, but you will see occasionally rules and laws that do have to recognize that the sea is rising and we do have to build against that. So it's, it's a little bit different picture at the state level. I'm so glad you talked about this because this is what I wanted to ask you in kind of our final minutes here, like the zoomed out question, because I think there is a sense sometimes that Republicans went from like climate denialism to like tepid acceptance or something or like acceptance that weird things are happening, but like no commitment to policy. But when you said that you think the kind of partisanship is getting more baked in, do you, is that part of like what the Republican Party is becoming, like moving away from the establishment more into into Trumpy stuff? Is that where there's like no interest in, in climate solutions and, and everything? Yeah, um, I think, yeah, baked in is a good word here. It's 
that there's a very strong anti-climate and climate denier strain in the Republican Party. I, it's even it's the most pronounced at the leadership level. So politicians in Congress. I think what's different now than maybe a decade ago was how much this is now part of of these culture wars. So um, instead of even debating the science and the the actual physics of climate change, which Republicans have tried to do, (laughs) saying um, things like the climate's always changed and and trying to, to parse the specifics, which they lost on every time. There's been this shift to actually by addressing climate change, what what this really is about is environmentalists want to take away your lifestyle. They want to take away things you love, like your grill, like your hamburger. Um, these I, I am not even exaggerating. These are regular talking points. Um, so it's it's been baked into this this kind of cultural oppression talking points, and I think that is where this becomes really hard to untangle. Like this has become about values. It's not about the science. If it ever was, it's, it's, and when you're talking about these, these very core values, it, it becomes an even harder political challenge to find that common ground. Um, The idea that we have a responsibility to act on climate. So yeah, that's the biggest shift I've seen. I think there was a time in my career I I would try to interpret what Republicans were saying on climate to see if they were going to turn a circle, ter- sorry, turn the corner and accept this and and come up with solutions. And I I'm at a point I don't I just don't see that. There's no evidence that they will turn that corner. This is so baked in that this is where the Re- Republican Party stands um, for the foreseeable future. And they represent a very different kind of platform on this um, that doesn't come even close to taking the crisis seriously. It's just, it's so grim, right? Because now we're ultimately talking about a situation where like, like you said, the Inflation Reduction Act is like a huge deal. And still it's only this kind of piecemeal address uh, or way to address this huge problem. Meanwhile, anytime you have Republicans kind of in control of either Chamber of Congress or the White House, it seems like it puts the chances of doing anything to zero, you know? So at, at this point, I mean, like, do you have any optimism for kind of uh, U.S. climate, addressing climate through any way, like in the foreseeable future? Or does, does the way our, our kind of system set up just leave us in a, a pretty hopeless place on it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think um, I do have hope. I think... Um, there's a lot of change happening already, and the the Biden administration is is working fast as well to to prop up these programs so and actually get the money out the door. I think there's a point where we see the economy shift enough that this is not something that that a change in party can suddenly pull back. Um, We are at a point where clean energy is cost competitive with fossil fuels. That day might someday come. It's not here yet for electric vehicles and heat pumps. 
um, the hope is these kinds of incentives get us there, that they level that playing field and actually make clean energy cheaper than fossil fuels. Um, so once you have those um, those underpinning <laughs> economic conditions shift, and, and that's where policy is so important, that's when the politics of this make less of a difference. So there's some evidence this is already happening then. And there were gains under the Trump administration, despite Trump, um, clean energy continued to get cheaper. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely a lot to hope for and a lot of ways I think we're going to see impact and reductions in, um, particularly in the power sector of, of how polluting that is. And we were in the midst of that change a um the republican control can certainly hold that back um but i don't think there we're not at a point we we're well past that point of full reversal got it okay rebecca well thank you so much that was so fascinating yeah thank you for talking about this and it's nice to end on a positive note in this topic so i guess we'll leave it there (laughs) it's not always my first instinct so appreciate the question (laughs) all right thanks so much Belaboring the Point with Kate Riga is a TPM podcast. The show is hosted by, surprise, me, reporter Kate Riga. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to our TPM members who make the show possible. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcast and subscribe wherever you listen.